So we turn into Ephesians 6 again this evening. Ephesians 6, which is powerful. It's, uh, well, it's a vital piece of scripture. We may say that all scripture is vital, but there are those pieces that we, we look at that give us some real instruction. And this is one of them, the whole armor of God that we're looking at. And we're looking at it, in some senses, quite, quite deeply, because there's quite a lot in it. And we don't want to rush through something so important as the armor of God. So finally, it says, my brethren, in the first two verses, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The command is to put on the whole armor of God. He's speaking to Christian people. It's written to the Ephesians, but not only the Ephesians, this letter, remember, to keep in mind here, is a letter that's circular. It's to all believers, put on the whole armor of God, believers that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we, he is self-inclusive in this, we do not wrestle with, against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Recapping to some degree, which is, to me, it's important. So we know where we've been. We know where we're going. Wrestling is something that a Christian cannot avoid. Every believer must wrestle. We wrestle against our own selfish pride, the lusts of the flesh, the world, and all the enticements that it has to offer. And we wrestle with our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And if you're not careful, he will devour you. We wrestle personally because Satan is a personal enemy. He hates God the Father. He hates God the Son. He hates God the Holy Spirit with a hatred that is so intense. He hates the angels. He hates the church. He hates the whole body of Christians. But we have to understand that he hates you personally. And he seeks to destroy you. We wrestle the entirety of our lives until we reach glory, where we shall rest in full peace at last. No sin, no sickness. No worldly flesh. I long for those days where we don't have to contend, not even with the enemy, but with our own flesh. But there'll be no Satan to contend with either, for he is going to be cast into the lake of fire. This will be a bliss that we cannot fathom right now. But until then, until that great day, when we're released from this great burden of our flesh and the enemy in this world, until then, we're called to battle. We're in a war, but we're not in a war alone. Our high commander ever goes before us, behind us, by our side, and it is in his strength and in his power and his might with which we run headlong. You've seen, I don't know if you've seen war movies or something with the battles in them that they, they get stirred up on the front line and, and they put the weapons in the air and they're all ready and they shout and they march and they run straight forward right into the very center of the battle. That's what we need to be. 
We run headlong, sword in hand towards the enemy. Christians, friends, are not backseaters. We don't sit back and let them go to war while we put our feet up and watch TV. We are on the front line. And our common enemy will not cease to advance. You, you see that. He is bloodthirsty. He is relentless. And he will not cease to advance for his own wicked course. Neither then must we cease to advance. So last week we looked into ways with which to wrestle, uh, which to avoid Ways to wrestle today, and last week we looked at ways not to wrestle. Some warnings for us. And we must then take care not to be found wrestling against the Holy Spirit who seeks to protect us from harming ourselves by our own sin and who constantly strives graciously with us to pull us back from sin before we destroy ourselves. And so that's what we'll do. We will be just as relentless to go headlong into sin. If God does not hold us back, if he doesn't change us. He replaces this self-harming weapon with Christ's grace and with the promise of eternal life. We also must not be found to be wrestling against God's providence. We are but mere men, that's all we are. We cannot presume to know or always understand the ways of Almighty God. He is absolutely sovereign and in control over all his creation, whether that's celestial, whether it's the stars and the heavens and the planets, whether it's nature, whether it's the beasts of the earth, whether it's the weather, or whether it is us men and women. Nothing escapes him and nothing happens which is not decreed by him. Somebody said, a great example over the weekend about how we take man's responsibility and God's sovereignty and we put them together. It's like one train on one track and one train on the other. And if you cross them over, there will be catastrophe. But they need to remain side by side. We may not be able to force them together in our understanding. But man is responsible. You are responsible for your sin and your actions. And yet God also is absolutely sovereign in all that ever occurs in the world that he created. King's hearts, the Bible tells us, are in his hands. And every ruler is set in place by him. Think about that. The person that's on the seat of the prime ministerial seat in this country today is there because God has decreed it to be so. But that goes for all leaders that's ever been in place, the good ones, the wicked ones, and the ones in between. They're there for purpose, and that purpose is God's, and we may not always grasp or fully understand what his purpose is. They're set in place by him. Every part of creation does his bidding. Whatsoever comes to pass will, by God's divine will, counsel, and purpose, ultimately bring glory to his name and will be for the greatest possible good for his saints. I hope you believe that. 
I'm not saying that it's always easy. But truth, as we said this morning, truth can hurt. And truth is not always the easiest pill to swallow. But whatever God allows in our lives is for our ultimate good. And we will give praises to his name for all eternity, for everything that he allowed to come to pass in our lives. So we ought not to contend with God in what he does or what he doesn't do, what he allows or what he doesn't allow. We ought to be content with our lot, knowing that whatever evil we face in this life, whatever turmoil, whatever grief, God has saved us from a justly deserved damnation in the lake of fire and has promised us everlasting life in his kingdom. So we must trust him. We must take the lot that we have and we must trust him. We must not only trust him, but we must honour him even in the midst of those things. We must be thankful. We must honour God. We must obey him. Even in the, the darkest of times. Knowing that the suffering in this world and maybe that which you are undergoing right now in the grand scheme of things, is but for a little time. Paul says, doesn't he, the suffering of this world is just but for a little time compared to the eternal glories to come. Short. We must wrestle according to God's own rules and not our own ideas, not our own strengths, not our own strategies. And it's in his strength and his might, his way. And if it isn't, we fail. So this evening, I want to take note of perhaps three things by which we must wrestle. Again, we said last week things that we ought to avoid this week, things that we ought to be inclusive of. First thing is that we must engage with God in prayer. If we're going to wrestle with the enemy, we must engage with God in prayer. Now, I'm probably, I'm quite confident that perhaps all of you in this room may agree with me when I say this, that one of the weakest areas of many believers' life is that of prayer. You can see that, let's be honest, you can see that on a prayer meeting night. Perhaps a small percentage of the church attend a corporate prayer meeting. And to me, that says a lot. And yet prayer is so very vital in our Christian life. Prayer is so very vital as we stand against the enemy. But it is, unfortunately, not only personally one of the weakest, but also corporately. It seems so easy to maintain ordinary living in our lives. You know, we, we go about our business go about our day-to-day -day agendas without giving time to God first. Now, you might, you might come to me and say, actually, no, I get up every morning before I go to work and I spend time with the Lord. Well, praise God for that. Hallelujah. Wonderful. But I bet your bottom dollar, the majority of us don't. I don't even mean... Merely an acknowledgement of the Lord and, you know, a presenting to him this, this kind of daily list of our needs before we run out the door to what 
is facing us for the day. I don't, I don't mean that. Well, you know, we, we, do, we do live in this, in this fast-paced society. And we've got many demands on our lives. It can be difficult to fit everything in. Our work days begin earlier in these days that we live. And often, more often than not, they finish later. That may not be the case. I, I didn't live 100 years ago, but maybe they do. Our spouse and our children, they have demands on our time, and rightly so. You know, Paul speaks about it, doesn't he, in the Scriptures. If you're a single man, if you're a single woman, for me, I would advise you to stay that way. Not because it's wrong to marry. It's a great thing to marry. It's a wonderful blessing. But he says, because when you're married, that other person wants your time, needs your time, and you ought to rightly give it to them. But if you're single, you can devote yourself to the Lord. So our, our children and our spouse demand the time, the jobs around the house that need to be done. And let's be honest, there are things that we like to do for ourselves. You know, we like our leisure time, we like our hobbies. Those things that tend to excite us more than prayer. I do hope at some point to look into the subject of prayer in more detail. But this prayer, this way of praying, this this gift, actually, that God has given to his people, this communion, this, this holy communion with God is a key ingredient to this very subject to hand. J.C. Ryle states, The saddest symptom about so many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict and fight against spiritual apathy in their Christianity. Does everybody know what apathy is? It's like a deadness, like a not botheredness. I'll do it laterness. And he says, these symptoms in these so called Christians is this great absence of anything like conflict against that spiritual apathy in their Christianity. They eat, they drink, they dress, they work. They amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money. They go through a brief round of formal religious services once or twice a week. But of the great spiritual warfare, it's watchings and strugglings. It's agonies and anxieties. It's battles and it's contests. Of all things, they appear to know nothing at all. Let us take care that this case is not our own. That is extremely challenging. It's like having a finger pointed right at you, and I'm sure, and I read that, and I look at myself, and I think of myself, I'm sure there are a few of you in this room today who are feeling very uncomfortable in your chairs right now. Prayer, friends, is the number one thing when it comes to spiritual warfare. Just take a, a look at a famous example from Scripture. There's many of them that we could spend a whole night just looking at the Scriptures of examples. But here's one, 2 Chronicles 20, 
verses 1 to 4, verse 17 and verse 22. It happened after this that the people of Moab and the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. And some of them come and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. And they are in Hazazon Tamar, which is En Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared, he was afraid. And he set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. He feared, he was afraid, he was absolutely overrun. He, there was no way that he could do anything about what was going to happen. But he called a fast. Not only did he himself set himself to seek the Lord, but he called a fast in all of those around him in the city. We need to seek the face of God. And so, verse 17, read the context. Please do, read the chapter. It's a great story. He says this, God says to them, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still. Think about what we've read in Ephesians, that you may stand, therefore. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And then lastly, Verse 22, now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. And these are just a few verses out of this whole chapter. And as always, again, as I've said, I do encourage you to read the whole so you can see the fullness of God working in Jehoshaphat and Judah. Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat made certain, even as his enemies, who were far too large for him, and his army were approaching. As they were there, as they could see them coming. Way too many in number, the Jehoshaphat and his army. Even then, he was careful to turn to the Lord and seek his face in that situation. And what did God do? He did wonders. I want you also to note Exodus 33, verse 15. This is the incident after what happened with the golden calf. Moses had gone up the mountain and was right in the commandments. He was gone 40 days and 40 nights, which is around six weeks. Where's he gone? We don't know what's happened to this Moses. Where is he? Where's our leader? God was angry with Israel because they made golden calves and began to worship them in place of God. So God was angry with them and he threatened to leave them, threatened to leave Sinai. And he said, I'm going to make a great nation, Moses, of you. Instead, I'll leave them. They can go. They're stiff-necked people. I'll make a nation of you instead. But Moses sought his face, asked God, not to do what he said he would do. He even commanded them to leave Sinai, to go to the land flowing with milk and honey. But he said this, he declared that he would not go with them in their midst. I will not go with you. 
So Moses said this, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. You see, Moses was a man who needed God. He would not go one step further if God didn't go with him. He said, how will all the face of the earth know? All the peoples on the face of the earth, how will they know that we are different than them? Is it not that you are with us? And he said, if you don't go with us, how are we any different? I don't think about the church like that. If God's not with us, how are we any different? If the world can't see as they look into this very church and say, boy, God's with them. If they can't see that. Now we understand that God opens eyes and some people don't care and they're not bothered. I understand that. But for us, in the knowledge that if they can't see it, how different are we than anyone else on the face of this world? Is it not that God is with us? So he wouldn't go one step further unless God was with him. What about Jacob, who would not face his brother without going before God, without wrestling with him? He knew that he could trust God to deal with his brother after wrestling over that brook. Colonel says, enlist the Lord and the back door is shut. No enemy can come behind you. Instead, your enemy will fall at your feet. That is why we need to make God our first point of call. That is why we must seek his face. That is why we must go before him in every and any situation as we battle the enemy, as we battle our flesh. As the world entices us and tempts us, we must go before God and give it to him first and foremost. Second thing is this. We must never cease in our training. We must engage with God in prayer and we must never cease in training. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus. Not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. We must be these kind of people who discipline ourselves, our bodies, our minds, and we must bring them under subjection into the goodness and the glories of the sweetness of the word of God. You see, Satan, apart from some other people who, who think they're far above what they actually are, Satan is far from a weakling. It's already been stated clearly that he far exceeds the strength of mortal men and the cunning and the wisdom. This is why Paul's endorsement to be strong in the law is so vitally important. Who enters a race, a boxing match, a wrestling ring? 
Who enters there? I mean, again, I've said this before as we've been going, there are boxing fans in here. You like watching it. You like the, how they, uh, I don't know, the strategy. I don't really watch it, but how they do it, why one wins and the other doesn't. You look and they've got strategy. These men, they don't go into that ring after just having their feet up. They, they, they train. They, they don't go untrained into the ring, do they? They spend an immense amount of time mentally and physically training themselves so that they're ready for that one fight so that they might come out of it, the victor. They are finely tuned, like the opposition. The opposition who is finely tuned for the contest. He will bring the novice into subjection very quickly. Will not that roaring lion devour his prey as though it were just a morsel of bread if we are untrained if we enter the ring to fight with no training no continued training these these fighters it's their life while they, they may have a period of time in their lives you know, like footballers there's a time that comes where they retire they're too old but in that time runners boxers wrestlers footballers sportsmen whatever genre you like in that sense that they have a period of time and they give everything to it only the best people, the people who are the most disciplined, are the most successful. Probably a debate within football with Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, who's the best? They're both great footballers, both world class. Never says Messi, I disagree, I think it's Ronaldo. But there you go. But he and Messi, they're both absolutely disciplined in their genre of sport they train they're there in the morning before everybody else they're last on the pitch at night when everybody's gone home they discipline themselves and that is why they are where they are you see we must as we are commanded trust in god's strength but we must also discipline ourselves we must bring our bodies under subjection as paul commands it is our duty to be putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our sanctification is synergistic. It's twofold. Our justification is all of God. We can add nothing to it. But when it comes to our sanctification by the power of the Spirit, we act. We put to death the deeds of the flesh. We do this so that our sin does not become a handle for Satan to grasp in the ring and to pin us down in guilt and shame, weakening us. We have to put off that old man. We have to put off the flesh. And we have to put on, as the word says, the new man in Christ. We must present our bodies a living sacrifice and be renewed and transformed in our minds by the living in God's word. When holiness reigns supreme, Satan dare not touch it and finds nothing to grab a hold of. Knowing the magnitude of Christ's love for us will deflect the enticement of sin and like oil used on restless skin, make us agile and our spirit supple to evade the enemy. Romans 8, 35 through 39 says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including you, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. But with him, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Lastly, so we've seen that we ought to be constantly in prayer, that we ought to engage in God in prayer, and that we should never cease in training in facing the enemy. And the third point is this, do not stop holding the enemy down. When someone fails in some particular area, whether that be in a business or maybe a failed relationship, for example. We as loving friends or relatives may try to encourage them by saying such things like, when you get knocked down, get back up. You only fail if you stay down. This may be good advice to those we love. However, we do not want our enemy to get back up once he has been knocked down. Satan is, as again, I keep saying this, he's relentless. He's never going to tire of wrestling against all that is called holy until that final day when he is finally and forever cast into the lake of fire where he rightfully belongs. This enemy will rage, he will spit, he will seethe with hatred against you and with your absolute destruction in mind. That's his aim. And he will continue with the example of a bull to a red flag or a red rag. They hate the colour, it stirs them up with anger, they run and chase after it. That's what the devil's like against you. He's going to charge at you if he's not kept down. In wrestling, when the opponent is pinned, and has admitted defeat, he has submitted, the grip is released, and the winner declared. Oftentimes there's good sportsmanship, isn't there? They may pat each other on the back and, well on, good fight. But we must never release our grip. And once we do, He'll come right back at us. Let me quote Mr. Gurnall once more. He says this, the, the object is to put your opponent on his back and keep him there. Do not so compliment sin as to let it breathe or rise. Do not repeat Ahab's sin and let the enemy loose when God has decreed his destruction. Learn a little from Satan's brood. Though they had Christ on his back, they still took precautions. They never thought that they had him sure enough, not even when he was dead. So they sealed 
and watched his grave. You should do the same to hinder the resurrection of your sin. Seal it down with stronger purposes and solemn covenants and watch it by a wakeful, circumspect walk. I want you to be encouraged, not discouraged. Don't be discouraged because of the strength of the enemy. It's a good thing to realize the enemy and the foe that you're against, like Jehoshaphat did. He saw it was too many. He saw, he said, you know, what can we do? We, could, we can't do anything about this. But what he said is that we look to you. That's what he said. They, they looked to God. So don't be discouraged about the strength of the enemy. Don't, don't cast your look upon your enemy. We had a great message over the weekend about giants and grasshoppers, didn't we? We don't need to view ourselves as grasshoppers, even though we are. When we have God who is in control, giants will be slain. Do not shake in fear at his relentless onslaught against you. Don't be downcast at the constant fight against the sinful nature. A young child in the midst of ruthless bullies finds comfort and safety in the presence of his older brother. Christ is our champion. He is our older brother. And he goes before us against our foe. We can smile, we can be encouraged because we know that our older brother is with us. Satan is primarily Christ's enemy and he is ours by extension of us being his family. As was said to Jehoshaphat, well, we too must be ready ourselves. We must be ever prayerful in trusting our God and making known to him our great need of him. We are in the fight. The call to wrestle self, sin and Satan. And as Joshua and Israel went to battle, so must we. And as Moses Arms were lifted and stretched out. Israel advanced in victory just as long as that were there. And so we advance to victory as Christ has lifted up his arms and stretched on the cross unto death. He defeated death, the last enemy, and he led a train of captive and vanquished foes. Satan is nothing to him. Our older brother is far more powerful. And the enemy that comes against us. You see, ultimately this battle belongs to God. We cannot lose because our Father is invincible. Satan is no match for the almighty triune God. So, like Jehoshaphat, we shall stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with us. And with this in mind, let me then encourage you to do what Paul says as he was about to leave this world. I have fought the good fight. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep the faith. Be a warrior of valor. Face sin and face your adversary knowing that you stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And that the Son of God, our older brother, our captain, our commander, the Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies of the hosts of heaven goes before you.
behind you and on every side. With him, you remember, as Ahab was in the battle, he asked Jehoshaphat, you wear the king's crown and I will just put on normal armor so that they don't know that I'm the king. And what happened? Somebody at a venture drew back his bow and flew an arrow. And what happened? Found a gap in the joints and killed him. But you see, with Christ, the arrows of wickedness will not find gaps in joints of the armour as they did with King Ahab. Because we wear God's armour. Psalm 121, 7-8 says this. Take this. Take this to your heart. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth, even forevermore. That is a mighty, most wonderful and certain promise for all who put their trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your words that we are looking at in this fascinating epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. God, help us to understand, we pray, this armour of God. Help us to know what it means to be putting this on. Help us to know what it means, what we must do, what is our part to play. Lord, we know that you are the strength, that you are the might, that we have nothing to give, that we have nothing to, to put towards it, that the armour all comes from you, that we don't make half of it. You don't give us the, the arm pads and the helmet and we make our own shield. It's all of yours. It's all yours to give. Help us to take it up. Help us to understand what it is to fight in the battle. But Lord, not only to understand, let us not be those who are backseaters. Lord, we must be on the front line. Help us, Lord God, to be those who are constant in prayer. Pray without ceasing, says your word. Help us to understand what that means. Help us in our lives, Lord God, not to neglect communion with God. Because we will be going into the battle without any armour, should we do such. And so we commit our way to you. And as believers, as we have just read in that astounding promise in your Psalms, you shall preserve your people from evil. That our souls will be preserved that are going out and coming in from this day forth and forevermore. Lord, we commit our way to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for that promise in Jesus' name. Amen.